It's that time of week, the time you've been waiting for. It's time for Goat Gab, a weekly podcast about all things in the dairy goat industry. Sit back and enjoy an hour or so with your hosts, Laura Warren Hughes and Cameron Jedlowski, as we talk about ideas and topics that matter to the dairy goat world. Hello, Goat Gabbers, and welcome to another exciting episode of Goat Gab. As always, I'm one of your co-hosts, Laura Warren-Hughes. And I'm the other co-host, Cameron Jadlowski. And this week, we are joined by a friend of the podcast, friend of us as well, um, and um, longtime goat influencer, even though he doesn't know it, Craig Copeman. Craig, welcome back to the program. Glad to be back. And I don't know that I'm in an influencer, but I do the best I can with the dairy goat industry. <laughs> Craig doesn't want to call himself an influencer, but I call him an influencer. <laughs> I know he influences lots of people, so I would I would agree with you there, Cameron. <laughs> and and both breeds he produces as well, I will say. And he's got a long history of success in both those. Before we jump into our yearly conversation with Craig, let's kick it off. Laura, what's happening at your place? Watching lots of goats get fat. So that's a happy thing. Um, we uh, got our two little surprise son and buck kids off to their new home. And thank you, friend of the podcast, Margaret Shamus, for giving our boys a new a, a new place to live. So enjoying hand milking one goat and uh, getting pregnancy tests back and seeing who's bred and who's not and uh, just waiting, waiting for those magical days of babies coming. So my husband even said, you know, I'm ready for baby goats. It seems like that it's time. So that was kind of surprising to me. You never know if goat people really like the goats or not, and especially when they invade your kitchen or you know, kind of take over life. So it was, it was kind of fun to hear him say that. I can imagine that. Uh, Craig, I do have a question for you based off Laura there. When you find a goat that is not pregnant this time of year in January, will you go ahead and breed her for those crazy June kids? Or are you going to just milk her through? I will not breed her. She will be, be milked through. Actually, for my mature does, my cutoff is usually November 1st. If they're not bred by then, I don't breed them. They come and eat late November or December. Too bad you're being milked through. There's an occasional rare exception on maybe a high-demand doe that kids are ordered. I might breed them in November or early December. But generally, November 1st is my cutoff of mature does. I don't want them... I don't want my kids born that late and dealing with summer kids and feeding kids all summer long. That makes sense. That makes sense to me. I know um, I'm crazy and we bred a goat like last week. So um, don't look at me because I'm, I am the problem as, as Taylor Swift would say. Um, so but I, 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 I'm just always curious what everyone's thoughts are. And I know um, our friend, all four of our friends, Jeremy Francine, is like looking at that as well and doing some later kidding as well there on that in order to space out some of his lactations. And then even trying to breed some for fall fresheners as well compared and really enjoying some of the perks of, of winter milking goats because everyone loves milking goats when it's, you know, negative three degrees outside in Wisconsin and northern Illinois. Yeah, we do, I'm sure. <laughs> you know, though, Craig, I, I know this is something that we're going to uh, discuss later on, but that is something that, that if I ever thought about being a commercial dairy person, I really feel like that, that that inner struggle between breeding for, you know, later later freshening does, having newly fresh does in the late summer and fall versus having to feed all those kids that for year round, basically, I think that would be a really uh, big dilemma to have to face. So I'm eager to hear your thought process on that as we get talking later today. Yes, I could go on about that subject for a while and there's definitely give and take and different ideas on the right thing to do. So, Well, before we may dive into that conversation as well, Craig, 
What is happening at your place? I think it's pretty quiet, right? For us, it's fairly quiet. Most of the listeners might not think so when I say we're still milking 32 goats. For a lot of people, that might seem like a lot. For us, it's barely worth our time going out, but we are milking that many yet, and we've got that many that are not bred. They're being milked through, and so that's where we're at right now. We're gearing up for kidding. Um, we're going to start fresh in here in about two weeks, um, so we're getting ready, washing up the goat kid area, cleaning pens, sanitizing all the tubs that the individual kids will go in for the first couple days and making sure we've got our milk replacer ordered and kid feed ordered. We have all our supplies on hand, tattoo equipment, and et cetera, et cetera. So we're getting ready for kidding in two weeks. It's going to get crazy because we've got 180 does doobies clean January 25th and February 4th. So if anybody's not busy the end of January, you're welcome to visit. How many goats did you say? 180 from due between January 25th and February 4th. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. Will you sleep at all during that time? A little. Not much. <laughs> wow. Wow. Talk about getting it over. I mean, that's, wow. That's just a lot. I remember being there once, and I was dating a girl at the time, and we went there because her college didn't have anything else fun to do, and it was like an hour and a half away during the crazy kidding time and I texted you and you were like, yeah, come on out. We're just freshening like 25 goats today. And I was like, okay. <laughs> wow. Yeah. It's crazy. The good thing is the way we feed the majority of the does freshen during daylight hours. And we do have a camera system set up. We installed it two years ago. So we do have cameras in the barn now. So at night, if we think something's going to freshen, we can just get up, check our phones, and see whether we have to go out at night rather than getting dressed at 2 in the morning and going out and checking everything and find out that there's nothing going on and just losing that much more sleep. So cameras are a good thing, but generally most of our does do freshen daylight hours. So, Well, that is nice. I need to take note of that because I uh, was just – we were just making kidding – season preparations with with my wife and I and we were just trying to go through everything and I was like god they're all gonna kid at night or something like that and we do a lot of inducing and I know you do a lot of natural kidding correct correct I don't induce unless the dough gets to like day 158 159 then I will induce if I'm 100% sure on her due date but otherwise I rarely induce gotcha there so yeah, I want to dig into that a little bit more because I thought of a question randomly off the top of my head because I knew this would happen with you, Craig. Um, I don't know if anyone's ever been around Craig and I, but like I have talked to Craig to like four o'clock in the morning some nights, just asking him random questions. So um, Craig's really good at listening, and he generally doesn't uh, get much sleep when we have these conversations <laughs> at goat shows. Um, that was true. <laughs> Uh, which it is, it is half the battle and half the fun there. Um, but on my farm, quiet, train the chore help, leave on my honeymoon um, in three days now. So that's kind of been the focus. We've been stocking up on some of the stuff we need. Um, my wife found some CDNT, which has kind of been on back order recently. So pretty excited about that. Um, and just trying to get all of our kidding supplies in order as well there. But um, a whole lot of nothingness. Went on a went on a super secret goat trip, um, which I will be able to share more a little later on. So yeah, super secret goat trip. That sounds like something that you need a cloak and dagger for, Cameron. <laughs> I don't know if I would call it that, but uh, we went and, and and looked at some goats and such. So um, always always fun to see some different goats and always think about some of the possibilities there. So yeah. Did you buy anything, or were you just looking? Uh, that's uh, to be determined at a later date. So that's the super secret part, right? Sure. 
Sure it is. Uh, I, I could have bought more. Let's just say that. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Cameron, is there anything? Hap- oh, let's back up. Craig, do you have anything else you want to share about your farm? Other than the, the calm before the big explosion? Nope. It's, things are good. I can't complain about the weather. We've had close to what I consider ideal winter. We had a late Christmas and we've had generally temps 20 at night and low 30s during the day, which that's what I want in the winter because it, it's not too cold. And we don't have to deal with a lot of mud when it's 35 or 40 degrees every day. So that's where we're at. And I'm just getting ready for kidding. So you, you stock up on sleep in addition to caffeine, I'm sure, right? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I have my, been watching sales and I've been stocking up on the caffeine and stockpiling that for early February. And I'm getting my share of sleep now. I, I used to tell people, I used to always ask me, well, when do you sleep if you're fresh? And that many goes in that short a time. They said, I sleep in the winter time. I hibernate. And then I wake up the end of January and I don't sleep for a month. Oh, bless your heart. I, I, I got to ask how, like how much like Mountain Dew or, or soda is sitting around the house waiting for this. And isn't it just you or, or is your brother involved as well there? It's me and my brother. Gotcha. There's two of us. So we do it together and then we have a little bit of help. Mostly family help, but we have one or two other high school kids come in and help us bottle kids when we have that big rush. But for the most part, it's just the two of us. Doing the Lord's work, wow. as I will say. Doing the Lord's work. I'm sure there's a lot of prayer involved. <laughs> um, Cameron, this- do, we have a, do we have anything with ADGA news to discuss today? I don't not really a lot. think there's it's not a kind lot. of a quiet time, too. Yeah, kind of quiet. I was looking at my like DHIR, like getting registered for that, and that was super convoluted and confusing. Um, so if you need help on that, let me let us know. I will be gladly to kind of show you where that is because that was super confusing signing up for that. Um, and then uh, looking at like Adga Plus programs as well, that was super confusing. I had to walk my dad through that this week. Um, so feel free to sign up for that if interested, including LA and DHIR, um, and get your Adga genetic or Adga plus uh, memberships in. So, um, if you're interested in that, that's going to go till January 31st. We'll have a couple more reminders as well on that before the end of that period. Cause I'm sure I will forget to do it uh, when I get back from my honeymoon. Well, it's coming up fast and, and for sure it's not the easiest thing in the world. I think eventually when all the bugs get worked out, how many times have we said that? Um, it will be a lot easier, but in the meantime, don't wait until the last minute. It's kind of like taxes. You know, if you wait until the last minute, it makes it even that much more hard to get done. So uh, try to get signed up. If that's something that you're interested in, reach out to a director or somebody who can help you. If you're having any issues, don't wait till the last day. Yep, but that's all on the association front. Craig, are you ready to talk? Because I, I'm super excited about this and, and visit, and uh, we're not going to keep each other up super late, but maybe past our bedtimes a little bit. Yes, let's go. <laughs> uh, I want to kind of start out with here and kind of just talking about 2023 in the commercial dairy, goat dairy world. And kind of see what the outlook is, you know, 2022 was um, a little bit different with, with changing feed prices and increasing feed prices there. Obviously, a lot of producers felt the crunch of an increase in their hay bill. I know mine was. I am. I was definitely not emotionally ready for $6 a bale of hay. Um, so what's kind of the outlook in 2023? Well... I think it's sort of something in between good and bad, but I think for the most part, it's a positive outlook. Um, On the bright side, there's still demand for goat milk cheese. The demand continues to rise. It's this continues to grow. So that's all positive. Um, Here in the Midwest, there seems to be more competition for the milk now. Um, I would say it used to be Saputo was the big cheese maker 
and they controlled basically 90% of the market here in the Midwest, Iowa, Illinois, Wisconsin, Minnesota. Um, when they bought out Mont Chevrolet in 2017, they kind of controlled the market and they sort of took advantage of it because they cut our milk price a little bit three times in the last five years. But in the last year, year and a half, there seems to be more competition. Um, I know LeClaire Farms is expanding. Um, they have taken a couple producers from Saputo. And I don't know for sure what the market share is, different companies, but I think Saputo's down to maybe only like 70% market share now of buying milk from the farms. So I think that's a good thing. It's healthy competition. And it's led to an increase in milk price. Um, Saputo actually, over the course of the last year, they have increased our milk price about $5 a hundredweight, which is huge. They gave us a small increase back in, I think it was March. Um, and then this fall, um, I can't remember exactly when, October or November, somewhere in there, they gave us a healthy increase for what they call winter milk which is november through february and i haven't heard official word but it's supposed to be keep the price up the whole year so between last spring's increase and the increase this fall we've got to have about a five dollar 100 weight jump in milk price which is huge it'll make a big difference so my feeling is outlook for commercial dairy is good if you're able to make it through the last couple years with the rising feed prices and rising hay prices you ought to be able to continue making it through because now we've got the milk price to start offsetting that and my outlook is i foresee feed coming down not necessarily the hay but the grain is going to come down later this summer and into fall is kind of my feeling and what I anticipate happening. So between hopefully feed prices dropping this summer or fall and the milk price being increased, hopefully we see some extra profit in milk in this year. That's exciting. Yeah, that would be exciting. You could buy a new herd sire or something, huh? Or buy out another semen tank. <laughs> oh, we've got the sires ordered. <laughs> <laughs> well, I I want to dive right into the bucks and the sires there. You're breeding a crap ton of goats. That's the best way to describe it. That's, that is an accurate measurement there. A crap ton of goats in a certain period of time. How do you know if the buck did the job or not? Did they like wear a breeding harness or something there or what? No, we actually hand breed everything. And when we breed a doe, we bring the doe out, bring the buck out. We let him breed her once, and we put the doe away, we put the buck away. And so we, we watch him breed. We know if he got her bred, and it's it's one-shot deal. We don't let the buck breed the doe three, four, or five times because that buck can only be used so much in a day, so many times in a week. So he gets to breed the doe once, and doing that, and spreading the bucks out, we get about a 90% conception rate on natural breeding. We do some AI, and I'm not going to brag about my AI success. I do have some success, but it's not great, so I'm not going to brag about it. But on natural service, we're running about 90% conception rate. And our does, it's a weird thing, but it's been going on for 20-plus years. And university professionals cannot explain it. I've asked lots of them, and they don't have an answer. But our does self-synchronize, and they will come and heat every year, the 25th, 26th of August, give or take a couple days. They will start cycling, and we will have 30, 40, maybe 50 does in heat every day for five to seven days. And... All we do on those days, that last week of August, is we get up, we milk, feed everything, and then we start breeding, and we breed all day, milk at night, we breed some more does after, 
get up and do the same thing the next morning. And so we're breeding a lot of does, but we've got our system set up with our breeding pens. So like I said, we bring a doe out that's an eight, bring the buck out, breeder, put them both back, get the next buck, do the same thing. And we have typically 12 to 14 mature bucks between the two breeds that we're using. So and pretty much every buck gets used every day for that week or 10 days when we're breeding so many that by the time we go through and breed one doe to each buck, it's half hour, an hour later, we can use that first buck again on another doe. So, and then we just keep cycling through them. Um, and by only letting the buck breed the doe once, we're able to breed more does to that buck each day if we want. Most we've ever bred in a day is 15 does to the same buck and 14 out of the 15 settled. On a typical day, <laughs> yes, let those numbers startle you, but yeah. Yeah, I have a lot of questions. <laughs> so, so Craig, this brings up some questions in my head. <clears throat> your Your bucks have to be like, in top condition and, you know, top health, ready to go. And I'm guessing, you know, I, I know that you use young bucks too, along with uh, mature bucks because, uh, you know, you'll, you'll feature bucks as being a young buck out of, you know, one of your really outstanding does. How do you get them ready for this marathon of carnal delight or however you want to put it? I mean, that's, that is a lot for a buck. Actually, I wanted to mention that when you say I use young bucks too, actually on the milking herd, for the most part, I only use mature bucks, meaning bucks a year old a year old and older. The young bucks, like bucks that were born in 2022, for the most part, I'm only using them on kids that were born in 2022. And that's kind of what I do is I use bucks, young bucks on the same age does and bucks a year and older i'll use on the mature does um occasionally i'll use a young buck on a mature doe this year i bred tucson and mature does to a young buck young sonnet buck that i brought in this year but on the alpines i didn't use any 2022 bucks on the mature does so what are you ramping up their nutrition in like August and July and in order to, you know, are you feeding them Gatorade? Like what's <laughs> like, I, I know some of the bucks that I have and they are not the fastest workers. So I think you got to kind of train them. They learn that you got to be on your game. You've got a job. If you come out of your pen, you've got a job. Don't dilly dally around. So, but getting them ready, we usually worm, deworm them in July sometime. We'll go through and we'll deworm all the bucks. Other than that, for the most part, the bucks are kind of out of sight, out of mind most of the year. They're out on a, they have a small shed for shelter and acre, acre and a half of pasture. And they're just out there and they get their grain every day in the pasture and maybe some supplemental hay. And basically, they're a little bit out of sight, out of mind, but as long as they stay healthy, I need you, and I really need you for one month out of the year, 11 months, you can be lazy, just hang out, do whatever you want, but that one month, you better be ready to do your job. And so, have you had to change breeding plans on the fly because a goat has not wanted to do their job? I've had to change breeding plans on the fly not very often because a buck didn't want to do his job more often because i've used that buck too many times already today so i'm going to go to a different buck rather than waiting three weeks to breed her and that's the reason i never publish a planned breeding list like a lot of people publish their breeding list and they'll put it out there and say here's what we plan to breed each doe to this fall I never publicize that. I make my list. I have my list that I try to follow, but I never publicize it because probably 
40% of my does get bred to something other than what I have listed as their first choice. But on my list, I have every doe listed, and I have first choice buck to breed or two, and second choice buck to breed or two. And if I have AI plans for her, I also have a third choice buck listed to breed or two. So that way, if a buck's been used 10 times already today, and I've got her second choice, that doe's second choice buck has only been used three times, I'm probably going to use the second choice buck on her. So... I have a question here, and that's my final question about bucks and their work here. For this breeding list, is it like a pen and paper? Or is it like a you guys both got a notebook out there? You and your brother out there with a notebook? Is it like a pocket breeding list? My grandpa used to do those and carry one around all the time. Like it was grandparents' day at school, and he would have the pocket breeding list in his breast pocket. But I'm like, is it that, or what's going on? It's you're. you're Sort of combining two things here. I have my list in the computer, and I'm messing with it all summer long. I've got my list of all the does in the milk and herd, and I'm messing with it all summer long, looking at it, looking at different options, what bucks are available, and who I think will improve this trade or help that trade or will cross best on this doe. So I'm constantly working on it all summer long, and... When I get home from the Iowa State Fair every year, which is usually ends August 20th, 21st, right in there, gives me about four days to finalize that list. And then I print it out and I take it out to the goat shed. I actually make two copies. And then we keep that list in the parlor where goats can't get to it. And then we have a binder that the other list is in. And we also have in that binder sheets that I've made up and basically it's it's just a chart I don't want to call it a chart or a graph basically it's got a set of boxes and we'll go out and we'll watch the does write down who's at heat on that paper after I get everybody written down that's at heat then I'll go in and I'll pull take out my breeding list and I'll write down next to that goat's name who they're supposed to get bred to. And as I'm filling that in, I'm watching, you know, how many are, am I got too many bred to this buck that I got to go to the second choice. So make the list then. And then I have another column next to that. So I have the doe listed, the buck list that she gets bred to another column next to it. And when we bring the doe out, bring the buck out. If he breeds her, we mark yes next to their name. If the doe's not in heat, she runs, whatever, maybe we're just, we're a little early. We saw her maybe start to come in heat, thought she was, brought her out. She didn't want nothing to do with the buck. We'll mark no next to it, and we'll put her back. We're probably going to be breeding her that night or the next day. But, so, we've got that chart, and we'll go through that whole list that we've written down, breed them, keep track. When we get done breeding for the day, then I go in. And I've got a separate notebook that I keep all the readings in. And it's just a regular notebook, spiral-bound notebook with all my columns. And I've got the does identified by tag number, tattoo, and their name if they're already registered. List the buck they're bred to, the date, and then I have a quote-unquote other column. And... That I put notes if I AI'd them or if there's anything unusual about it. You know, if the doe didn't really want to stand real well or, you know, just anything we might have noticed about it, I'll put that in the note. And then when I get done making that all, I take a picture of every page. So now I've got two copies. I've got the spiral notebook. I've also got a picture in my phone. So I've got two copies of it. I take my phone and when I get a chance, it doesn't happen every day, but I take my phone back home. And when I have a chance, I'll sit down at the computer and I'll put it all in a Microsoft Excel spreadsheet. So it's in the computer. So basically I have three copies of the breeding, the breeding list, spiral notebook, picture on the phone, and then in the computer, 
So that way, if I lose the book notebook, I've got two other copies. If the computer crashes, I still have my handwritten copy. Oh, that that would help me sleep better at night. <laughs> that would that would definitely be a good idea. Yeah, I'm not. Yes, I learned that a few years back where I used to take, instead of, I said I have that little chart where I write the no's down and then I write yes or no next to, the, next to them whether or not I read them. I used to just take the spiral notebook out and as we read them, I wrote them right in. Well, one time a doe got a hold of the notebook and there was a couple of readings. I couldn't read something in it. I'm like, shit. This isn't good. So I started taking pictures now. So. Oh, gosh. Okay, so, so Craig, this brings up – I'm sorry, Cameron. I've got another breeding question. I just got to do it. So, so Craig, I know that you attend national shows just as often as it's feasibly possible for you. Do you – do you come out of national shows maybe making some adjustments to your breeding program from what you've seen at the national show or, um, you know, do your placings at shows or other animals that you might see and you think, Oh, I like that change anything that you're doing or do you pretty much kind of have a steady set in your mind that, that you just go with national show. It influences, but it, it, I don't think it really changes my breeding plans a whole lot. Um, I'm using other shows, the club shows and fairs to help me determine because I show a lot more at those of my own does at those shows to give me an idea of consistencies or judges seeing what I think I'm seeing across more animals versus nationals. I'm typically only taking 12 to 15 head out of 300 that I'm milking. So, but what I do do at nationals. I try to watch as much as possible the sun on an alpine show, which is hard when you're showing those breeds, but I'm always constantly looking for potential sire dams. I.e., do I, do I see a doe out there that I want to get a buck from? So I am watching for that at nationals or I use nationals to confirm what I thought. You know, maybe I seen a picture somebody posted of a doe from an earlier show, and I'm like, I kind of like that doe. I want to learn a little more about her. And if I know she's going to be at nationals, I'll make a point of seeing her both in the ring looking her best and in her pen, pen milked out, half full, just see what she looks like in her natural setting and either confirm what I thought based on earlier knowledge of the doe or see that she's not necessarily what I'm looking for. That makes sense. At Nationals, Craig, are you making, and I think it's interesting, I'll ask this question. Um, have you ever, like, walked out of the ring and saw a goat and you're like, that's the one, and then, like, done the aggressive move and said, hey, here's my $100 deposit as they're walking out of the ring? Or um, what? what <laughs> is that a conversation for after the show? That is a conversation for after the show. I have never hit anybody up while the breed is still showing. I'm, I'm not that aggressive. I won't do that. Cameron, do people do that? I'm, I'm sorry. I, have. I found those where I was standing ringside and not even necessarily a really high-placing doe. There was one year I seen a doe in the two-year-old class, two-year-old Sonnen, and she was the first freshman two-year-old, and I don't—I think she stood like seventh or something. And I grabbed my camera and I took a picture. I got a nice side profile and a rear under shot of her, and I, went, I said, "I got to keep track of that doe." And two years later, I ordered a buck, and I was going from that doe, and she ended up going national champion. I had picked her out as a two-year-old, said, "That's the one I need a doe. I need a buck from that doe at some point." It's it's kind of like my dad's famous story where he found the 17th place yearling milker at the national show and fell in love with it. Then she went on to be like the reserve national champion, you know, and then the basis for a lot of the Alpine uh, French Alpine breed as a whole. Not only my herd, but a lot of Craig's herd, right? Yes. 
Laura, can you name the goat for all those Alpine enthusiasts that are listening to the podcast? Would that be Hoach's HLS Lyric? Correct. Yeah, because I've got stuff that goes back to her, too. One of my faves. Uh, but I want to stay uh, getting back to the podcast here and uh, I want to stay on the buck train here and I want to talk about proving out bucks because Laura and I run small herds. My dad runs small herds um, and we've worked in small herds, but you run a, a, a large herd there and you can obviously prove out bucks faster than a small herd can there. So with the numbers that you have, how fast in your mind can you prove out a buck and by prove out i will define as you are able to determine what traits they are throwing consistently multi-part answer to that okay i can get a pretty good idea in my own mind of that buck by the time he is two two and a half years old which he should have a bunch of milk and yearling daughters at that point I can get a pretty good idea. You can get them, quote unquote, numbers proven by that age too. If you've got if you've got them on DHIA test, once the proofs come out in July or August, you'll have the proofs on those yearling daughters. And if you if you've been appraised, have those yearlings appraised by then. Then you got numbers on them, so you can prove them out by that. But at the same time, I don't judge yearlings harshly. I can. In my mind, I can see potential in yearlings. I'm not looking for them to be ma- the mature doe or that hot thing as yearlings. I want to see the parts there and mature into being the doe. So I don't judge yearlings too harshly. So really, by the time a buck is three and he's got yearling and two-year-old daughters, that's what I really want to know. So... Basically, when a buck turns three by April of the year that that buck turned three, I know in my mind, is he going to be a lifer here? I'm going to keep him and use him till he dies? Or is he something that I need to move on from? Because now I've seen yearling daughters full lactations. I've seen them freshen back in as two-year-olds and have a month or two into that second lactation. Plus, I have another another year of daughters fresh because now he's got the next year's yearlings' daughters fresh. So by the time he's three, I have two years of daughters fresh, and then I really know and I can make a definite decision, yes or no, he's going to be here for a long time or it's time to move on from him. That makes sense. That perfect sense to me. So, and it's... To prove them out, like you said, I have I have a lot of goats. I can prove them out. My philosophy on it, and part of it's because I have a large herd, is if I'm going to have a buck here, I'm going to use him. I don't want a buck that's I I can't justify feeding a buck for a whole year if he's only going to breed one, two, maybe three does in a year. That I can't justify having. So all my mature bucks, they're going to be used on a minimum of 10 does, probably closer to 20 if they're going to be here. Um, All my young bucks, typically with the size split between my sonnets and alpines and what I keep for replacements, I typically have one, maybe two young sonnet bucks each year, new ones, and I will keep three or four new alpine bucks. and. I try to breed 10 to 20 doe kids with each of those bucks. And then from those breedings, I try to keep at least somewhere three to five doe kids out of each of those new bucks so that I can get fresh does, fresh daughters out of that buck the next year. Even if they're not necessarily out of really good dams, those kids, I try to pick I want at least three daughters from each buck just to start giving me an idea of what this young buck is going to do. That makes sense there. I can see how that really does help you to have some confidence when, when somebody comes to you and says, Hey Craig, I'm looking for a buck that'll do such and such. 
you've got the the data behind it to be able to say, well, this is what I've seen. So that's that that's neat. Uh, one thing I do want to dive in real quick on the buck side here is how do you choose a buck? I mean, you've got like 300 goats. I mean, I, I guess how do you where do you where does that process start? And how do you get from point A to point end on on that process there? Um, it's hard because there's a lot of does, a lot of breedings that I would like to keep a buck from, but I can't justify keeping them all. So I sort of let other breeders help me and I say when I say that I don't mean I'm asking other people for advice. Look at my breeding list. Who would you keep a buck from if you were in my situation? That's not what I'm saying. When I put out my breeding list, when somebody wants to order kids from me, I don't retain breeders' rights, so to speak. Or a lot of people say you order a kid, but if I decide to keep it, I have I have the right to keep any kid born. I don't do that. If I don't list it in my sales brochure that I'm retaining the doe kid or I'm retaining a, doe, a buck kid from this breeding, then if somebody orders it, they get first chance at it. I can't step back in front of them. So there's a little bit of process of elimination because I can't keep that many bucks. So I start, I help narrow that num- that number down of potential bucks for myself by what other people order from me that eliminates some of them but a few of them there's some that are very specific i'm definitely keeping a buck um i've got a son and doe this year i'm keeping a buck she's she settled ai um she's bred to a buck that has uh is a bee carrier for alpha casein i want to get that in my herd so i am keeping the first buck out of that breeding so that was one I'm definitely keeping it. Um, but there's typically, like I said, there's a bunch every year that I could keep from. And I just process of elimination. And it's one of my criteria for selling bucks that I will sell as breeding stock is if I won't, if I'm not willing to use them in my own herd, I'm not going to sell them. So, Having that as one of my criteria, I also know that all the bucks that I keep, I can sell to people whatever they want. Anything that I have left that people don't buy, they're still good enough. I'm going to be happy using. So that's kind of what I mean that's when I say I let other people decide. <laughs> that, so that's a- Again, on that buck thing, and this is really turning into like a breeding philosophy sire episode, Cameron. Didn't see that coming. But um, in in our show notes, Cameron had put this down, and I really want to make sure we hit this. Craig, you do a lot of um, leasing bucks to other herds and then also leasing bucks from other herds as well. Can you talk about that a little bit? You know, what... What got you started doing that? Why do you do that? And like some of the people that you lease bucks to and lease bucks from, these are people that you're butting, haha, head to head at national shows or lo- big local club shows with. Um, can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. Um, it's, I don't know, it's, you're competing with people, but it's also, you're still trying to better the industry and you're trying to better the breed. And to do that, you need to share the genetics. So I want to share and that, and to prove out bucks, the, the more daughters you can get in more herds, the better. So when I lease a buck out, it helps that other herd, but it also helps me because it's proven my buck. And it proves that he can work in this other herd. He does the same thing in that herd that he's doing in my herd. So somebody can't come back and say, well, he's only throwing good udders because your herd's known for good udders. Well, if this other herd is using them and he's consistently siring good udders, he's doing it in multiple herds. So there's that benefit. And it's the 
thing I like about goats is it's friendly competition. Yes, when we show, I want to kick Cameron's butt every time. But I know <laughs> I've got quality animals. May the best one win. And it's it's friendly competition. So, and to keep improving, you got to share those genetics. I've been working with Dr. Ed since probably before Cameron was born. <laughs> I ordered, I met Ed at the 93 National Show, and I ordered my first Kickapoo Valley buck in 1993. That was before I was born, so yes, I would like to point that out to everybody on the podcast. <laughs> and you were talking about picking your bucks out, looking at those at Nationals, 93 Nationals. I went just as an observer, I, I went to watch, I wasn't showing, and I watched the Alpine Show, and after the Alpine Show... Later that night, I went and I talked to Leslie Sidwell, and I talked to Ed, because I wanted to order bucks. Two people were pretty aggressive, because of the buck, but one I wanted to order from Leslie Sidwell, she had taken two orders, same day, earlier than I had talked to her, and I talked to Ed, and I ordered my buck, and told him my first and second choice, so... That was the start of my working with Ed, and we worked quite a bit together all through the 90s and 2000s and even up to present day. I, I will tell you, and I will tell the listeners this as well, the amount of collaboration I see in the purebred alpine gene pool between Midwest herds is really outstanding. And I think it really goes to show, one, how really – great these breeders are about really showing and, and, and furthering the breed. And yes, I have been a beneficiary of this, but two, I, I really think it shows is, Hey, you know, we can be competitors and, and we are our fiercest competitors. We, you know, every time I see Craig, I want to beat Craig. I want to be, I want to beat, you know, our, our good friend, Randy Adamson. I, wa- I want to beat the Thompsons, but at the end of the day as well, um, we're friends and, and borrowing from these bucks and we've all borrowed from each other as well there. And I, w- I think it's really brought the four herds that have done a lot of borrowing a lot further, a lot faster. I would agree with that. I mean, it's, I bought my first buck from Kickapoo Valley, like I said, in 93. And at that point I was pretty much a nobody. And Eight, nine years later, Ed came to me and he said, would you breed this doe to this specific buck? I would like a buck out of that breeding. I hadn't even considered the cross. And he said, will you make that cross? I would like buck. And he got the buck he wanted. Turned out to be a four-time national premier sire, so it worked out really well. But we've been working together on genetics, leased bucks. I've taken does down to get bred. The specific bucks down there. Um, I've worked with Thompsons. Um, Emily has leased in the last 10 or 11 years. I think she has leased five different bucks from me. And we have co-owned a buck. Um, it's been very, very good for us. I actually, I leased a buck from Emily last fall and bred a lot of does too. We actually traded. I leased a buck. I had him from Emily for the last week of August. And then when I was done using him the first week of September, turned around and took that buck and one of my own bucks back up to Emily so she could use my buck. And so we worked back and forth and it's worked very well. And it's, I enjoy seeing success of other herds with my genetics in them. It was thrilling to me when I seen when Emily Thompson won national champion with Aki Bono. I took a lot of delight in that, in her winning, because it was two generations of Pleasant Grove breeding behind that doe. So, yes, she won, and I was extremely happy for her, but it reflected back on my herd because it was a lot of my genetics. And that's one of the ways where the sharing of genetics is really beneficial for everybody. Well, I do want to ask you a question specifically on that, and I want to I want to talk about maybe sharing genetics and profitability as well here. 
when you borrowed a, a buck from our friend, the Adamsons there, did that really help your bottom line from some of the components perspective that buck could throw in there? Or like, has any of this sharing of genetics really helped improve kind of your component side of things as well? Yes. Actually, the buck I leased from Adamson's was Rochester, who went on to be a two-time national premier sire. And the reason I leased him, I wanted to lease him, was because he carried the A allele for alpha casein. And I wanted to introduce that into my herd. And that was how I introduced it. And there's definitely been a bump in components in my bulk tank average because of that. So, but it's, it's one of many things I look for in bucks I want to use. You know, am I trying to get a certain alpha casein? Am I trying to improve certain trait? And Rochester brought a lot of other things besides just the A allele and the alpha casein. He brought strength and uniformity. He just, he stamped a very specific style on the animals. It was amazing that first year kids out of him, you could pick the kids out in the pen. I've got a hundred kids and I can go down the line and I can point out every Rochester kid in the pen. So it's, it's really been a good thing. Laura, I bet you could do the same thing, too, correct? <laughs> well, my one Rochester kid, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but she she definitely has that look. I think so. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. Yeah, I'm just I'm just like I feel like a sponge here, just soaking this up because it's just so it it gives me all the good feels being part of a group of people who fiercely compete but also just as strongly cheer for each other with the successes that they have. And I think, um, isn't that what makes the dairy goat industry just pretty special? Yeah, here, uh, Craig, a couple more questions here. I kind of, we've got a lot more questions, but I think we've, we've talked a lot about bucks and picking out bucks and thinking about bucks. And I really think that's kind of the focus of this conversation. I never know where we're going to go with Craig Goatman, but we're going to get somewhere eventually. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I think this is a, I think this is a great topic right now because I know that many people are trying to consider where they want to go with their breeding season even though kidding season's just kind of on the cusp of starting but this is the time of year that that many breeders are are looking ahead do I need to add a new herd sire where do I go to how do I think about that and I think I think the things that we've talked about today have just given us so many options that maybe people haven't thought about so much or or you know maybe maybe can consider some of these ideas how they might work for their herd one kind of final maybe pivot but not really a pivot because we're talking about buck selection here is i want to talk a little bit about your um you don't want to toot your own horn but i will call it a, a robust ai program because you do more ai breeding than i do and you're a little bit more successful than i am um there but on a big herd and, and an AI in goats is so time sensitive and it seems like, and I've heard some crazy stories from you about your AIing there is how do you, I guess, decide the AI candidate? How do you decide if it's the time or not? And when do you kind of throw in the towel and say, okay, the live, the live breeding can get there. A lot of questions there. Sorry. consider myself to be great at AI. I typically run somewhere between 30 and 50% conception rate on my AIs, which I listen to everybody else. I see so many claims of 75, 80, 90% conception rate. And I'm like, what am I doing wrong? But I do know a lot of people say don't breed AI on the first heat, which I only breed AI on the first heat. Because in my situation, I want as many does fresh as possible from that first heat. I want them fresh the 1st of February, give or take. I don't want them, like we were talking earlier, I don't want to deal with late kids and be bottling kids all summer. So I only breed AI on the first heat. If they don't settle, I breed them natural the next, the next heat. So that is probably holding back my conception rate a little bit. Um, 
but I, I try to watch those. If they've settled AI in the past, I'm probably going to, they're going to be a good candidate to AI again in the future. I've got a doe right now that she's bred AI again this year, and I think it's going to be her either fourth or fifth set of AI kids in the last six years. So she's one. I know she settles, and I breed her. Typically, if I try a doe two years in a row and she doesn't settle, I kind of put her on a do not AI list. Um, most does, most of my AIs are actually milk and yearlings that are going to be two-year-olds. That's where I try to do most of my AIs on the first AI attempt, I guess you could say. Most of the older does that I'm AIing have settled AI in a previous year. But a lot of the, I don't know, virgin AIs, if you want to call it that, although it's not really the right word, is on milk and yearlings. The first time they're ever being AI is as a milk and yearling for a coming two-year-old. And if they settle, then they're going to get AI in future years. If they don't settle, I'll reevaluate the next year whether I'll try an AI again. So, but a lot of times my AIs, I have a specific goal in mind. Usually, I'm, I want to get a buck where it's one that I strongly considering keeping a buck from when I'm AI or I'm repeating a breeding from a buck I had previously that is passed on or something. And I would like a, I would like kids full sisters to something that I have in the herd currently. So that's kind of how I choose who to, who to AI. AI is such a timing game. How do you, have you figured out how to time it? correctly especially with such limited time windows or do you make time and tell your brother hey i gotta ai this goat you can you can breed these other ones <laughs> excuse me no um that actually may be another thing that i think is holding back my conception rate um i grew up with dairy cattle where you pretty much everything it's 100 percent AI and and they've almost got it down to a science. Cows in standing heat this morning, AI or tonight, twelve hours later. She's in heat at night, AI or the next morning. And you can expect really good conception rates. So that's what I grew up with that knowledge. So I try to somewhat apply it to goats, but on the goat side it's more of a twenty-four hour time frame instead of 12 hours and part of that is because i have the commercial herd and i have so many animals and so many does cycling in such a short time period i don't have time to be bringing a doe in and sticking a speculum in and checking the mucus and nope too early i'll bring her back in two hours nope still too early i'll bring her back in two hours i don't have time for that so basically i'm watching the does I pretty well know within a couple hours of when they first came in heat, my goal is to breed them 24 hours after I first saw them in heat. If we see them starting to go away from the fence by the bucks at less than 24 hours, if I have time, I'll bring them in and AI them earlier. If I bring them in and AI them at 24 hours and 8 hours or 12 hours later, they're still in standing heat, I will stick another straw in them, but for the most part, those are getting bred 24 hours, AI 24 hours after I first see them and eat, and they're just getting bred with one straw. Wow. Okay. One straw. Are you a bot? Are you a body thaw or are you a water bath thaw? Water bath. 96 degrees. <laughs> Those are fighting words, Cameron. Those are fighting words. <laughs> Again, I grew up breeding cows AI, and it's a science. Ninety-five to ninety-eight degrees. That's what works. <laughs> so that's what I do with the goats too. <laughs> 
I just I had to confirm that you were a team water bath there, so we can put this podcast episode out. I'm gonna anger I'm gonna anger the body thars. I apologize as well here. Lauren, you kinda wanna wrap us up on this kind of uh buck selection, breeding selection episode with Craig Copeman here? Oh, Craig, I think we need to make this an annual thing to pick your brain on different topics. I just think this is amazing. Um, if you, okay, so here's the big wrap up question. If somebody asked you for, for advice, like, like what is the best advice you could give somebody in picking a herd sire? What do you think you would say? Talk to people smarter than you and, Listen to lots and lots of advice. <laughs> That's really what I want. Um, when I when other people talk to me or ask me for advice on, you know, they come to me and they say they want to buy a buck and they want me to help pick a buck out for them. I ask them, what do you want to improve in your herd? And a lot of people say, I want to improve everything. And they run down a whole list of 10 different things. I'm like, no, you got to cut it down. Pick out two traits that are most important that you want to really focus on improving. And I can help you find the right cross in my herd to improve those two traits. Don't try to improve too many things at once because then you just, you end up scattered all over the board. Work on these two traits for a year or two. And then once you start getting them improved or you got them where you want, move on to a couple other traits. And that's, that's the advice I give people. Don't try to do it all at once. It, you got to go in steps and sometimes you got to give up a little something to make improvement somewhere else. So, sound advice. And we're going to pencil in the first week of the new year, every single year with Goat Gab, a conversation with Craig Copeman. And we are going to hop in and in the truck, and we're just going to let Craig drive. And we don't know where we're going, but we're going we're going somewhere, and we know Craig's not stopping. Only to milk and get gas. <laughs> and bring your sandwiches, right? Yeah. <laughs> yes. Uh, Craig, thank you so much for joining us this week. This has really been fun. I really – I enjoyed our first one. I think this one's even better than the than the first one. I enjoyed it too. I hope hope people learn something. Hope I didn't ramble too much. And as long as somebody takes something away from it and learns from this, <laughs> it's a good thing. Well, Craig, if if people wanted to find you and more out about your herd, where are some options that they can find you on the Great World Wide Web? I have my own personal Facebook page, Craig Copeman. Um, never post on it or anything. That's more to watch. I have that account more to watch other goat herds or pages. I also have the farm page under Pleasant Grove Dairy Goats. And that's where to find me if you need to contact me. Private message me either through the Pleasant Grove Dairy Goat account or through the Craig Copeman Facebook account. I can be emailed at ccopeman at msn.com. Um, I do want to mention every year I put out a herd brochure. Every once in a while I see somebody comment. I miss the good old days of waiting at the mailbox for somebody's herd brochure to show up. Nobody does that anymore. Well, I do the herd brochure. It doesn't come in the mailbox because it's way too expensive to print it out and mail it out. But I'll email it or send it by direct message through Facebook. So I have the herd brochure that I put together every fall and usually send out late November, early December. And also on my Facebook page, a fair number of people know it. But every year I typically do what I call a daily feature. And I usually start sometime in early December, and I'll feature one doe every day and hashtag it, hashtag daily feature. And I'll do that all December and January up until I start freshening. And it's just a way to get individual goats out in front of people, and especially goats that 
are at home. They don't get out and shown, but they're high quality. They've got good milk records, and they deserve some recognition. But they never get off the farm because I have too many goats to show them all. Yeah, that's a really neat feature. Craig, your herd brochures are works of art. And um, I, I am unashamedly saying I don't mind printing them out in color and ooing and eyeing and drooling over beautiful animals in there. So um, as Craig mentioned, for those who are bemoaning the fact that nobody does printed herd brochures, well, Craig can um, fill that need for you because they are beautiful. I I almost have to print Craig's actually when I get it, and I wish he would start sending me the song in one. And I know he's going to do that now just because I like to look. I don't touch, but I like to look. Um, that's what I do with a lot of goats on Facebook. But um, I I wish I could print it out because then I could circle and highlight goats. Because as I'm scrolling through it on my computer, I forget which goat I was sawing, and me and my dad will just go through it. All right, Cameron, I just updated the computer list. You are now on the list to get Sonnen and Alpine herd brochures. <laughs> We're going to see the Great White Wave appear at uh, Kickapoo North, I think. Uh, definitely not. But <laughs> definitely not. Um, listeners. Give me two years. We're going to get that color out of them sables. We're going to have straight white ones there. <laughs> It's just uh, it's just a little tweak there, Cameron. Just a little bit. Just just a smidgen. Uh, um, thank you, listeners, for joining us this week. If you have any feedback or ideas for the podcast, let us know. Um, we appreciate all feedback. Leave us an iTunes on. Uh, leave us a um, feedback on Apple iTunes, Spotify, wherever you get your podcast. Find us on the Facebook. Don't forget, Laura and I. You can reach out to us as well if you have any comments. Um, don't forget about the circuit. If you have shows coming up as well, there, um, look out, uh, the website should be up to date or should be online at some point, um, probably after my vacation. So we'll get that, um, out and updated, um, for y'all that are interested in participating in the circuit. But in the meantime, keep track of your wins, get your show officials to sign it so that uh, you can you can uh, get credit because we know that our friends in the warm states are already doing shows right now. So, um, you know, excited to hear how those go for you. As always, as Cameron said, we are so happy that you joined us and have a good week, everybody.